This is Susanna McMonigle, and you're listening to the 5 to 8 Shift Podcast. We are so glad that you decided to check us out. The 5 to 8 Shift Podcast exists to encourage, educate, and inspire parents throughout their own parenthood and family life adventure. We know parenting can be tough. I am not trying to sugarcoat it. But few worthwhile things in life come without some sweat and some hard work. And family life is worth every ounce of effort. We're building a community of parents to remind you that you're not alone and we are thrilled that you're here. Each month we highlight stories from our parent community and share the latest research and tips to help families thrive. If you like what you hear today, make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I believe family is one of life's greatest adventures, and I am so excited to chat with you today. I look forward to cheering you on in your own five to eight shift. It's the most important shift of the day. All right, Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I am so excited to have you here today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. This is such an honor. You are, I feel like you're one of our first true experts to have on the podcast with your... (laughs) No pressure at all. (laughs) No, you got this. You got this. So why don't you start off telling us a little bit about you, about your family, um, about your own adoption, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be glad to. Um, okay, so my husband Mark and I have been married for oh 22 years now. Um, we have four kids, uh, two boys and two girls. Um, they are 18, 16, 14, and 11. So like I'm I'm in the throes of teenagehood. Yes, right you now. are. <laughs> yeah, um, which actually is not as scary as I thought it would be. So that's that's a good thing. Um, our three older kids are all biological, um, and our youngest, uh, a little girl, was adopted from China as a toddler ten years ago. Okay. Um, we didn't really intend to be a family of six. <laughs> Which always seems to generate some like good old fashioned uh, sibling uh, snark whenever we go, of course. You know, we say that. <laughs> but but um, it really is true. We we struggled to have uh, children uh, originally and um, had a number of miscarriages. Okay. Um, when we were pregnant with Drew, who's our current fourteen uh, year old. Um, we actually went to the doctor and uh, at this point I was like high risk pregnancy and, um, they told us that we were miscarrying him. Oh my gosh. Um, Yeah. So, you know, Mark and I, you know, went out that day to lunch and decided we'd had a long interest, uh, a heart for adoption, um, both for, for children and families in crisis. So we went back to the doctor the week. There was a heartbeat and Drew was okay. Oh my <laughs> and gosh. All of a sudden, like that we were having this third baby. Um, but we <laughs> felt like God had brought us to this place that had like grown our heart to grow our family through adoption. So even though we never imagined we'd have four children, um, when Drew was one years old, actually like on his first birthday, we oh started gosh. the paperwork process to adopt. Um, it wasn't, it, it took us a while. So it wasn't okay. until uh, like three years later that we came home with our daughter um, oh, wow. from China. But 
that's kind of the cliff notes version to how a um, two child family who was happy with a boy and a girl became a four child family. <laughs> and that was quickly. And ever. It happens quickly, you know, these things. It's like, wait, 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 what? What's happening? Yeah, yeah that's kind of what happened. Oh, so, so how old was your daughter when you guys brought her home? She was 13 months old. Um, okay. Brought her home from China. So she was like a tiny, tiny little peanut, though, because she was about the size of maybe a six-month-old. Oh, wow. Um, but she took her first steps with us in China, and it it was awesome. It was like this little tiny six-month-old baby walking around. It was awesome. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. That is so cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So now you have your four kids in your family, and uh, 13 months, and she's 11 now, right? She's 11 now, yes. Just started her first day of in-school sixth grade today. Okay. Today's a big day. Yeah. It's a big day. Yeah, oh, that is so fun. That is so fun. Um, okay, so one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on is because you guys have an awesome nonprofit called the Sparrow Fund. So can you tell us um, a little bit about the Sparrow Fund? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we weren't home long um, from China with Lydia that we felt the tension, I guess I'd say, felt the tension of there being... Um, a lot of resources available to families, encouraging them to adopt, and even you know grants available to help them with the cost, the financial cost of adoption, which can mm -hmm. be you know, pretty significant. Yeah, but there wasn't a whole lot out there uh, for families once they were home. Um, families who like found themselves in this space of like, what now? You know, what do I do now? How do I do this well? Um, which is basically where Mark and I found ourselves. <laughs> so, you know, we started the Sparrow Fund almost, uh, it, I'd say, like with the selfish desire of like feeling a felt need ourselves, yeah. um, but also wanting to kind of stand in that gap uh, to help children and families, uh, children and parents to become better families yeah. um, and have kind of uh, resources and support once they were home, not just in the becoming a family part, but in the learning to really become a family once they were home. Yeah. Yeah. So what kinds of things does the Sparrow Fund do for families? Uh, originally, we just um, very simply gave grants to families to get pre-adoption support and counsel uh, around like um, the decision-making process of accepting a referral and, and, coming home initially. Okay. Since that um, time, which was 10 years ago now, we've, we started the Sparrow Fund in, in 2011. Um, so we're just about to celebrate 10 years. Um, we have um, grown to include uh, individualized support for families in our grant program um, that follows families until they're home for a full year. Um, awesome. Marriage support and counsel for them and additional resources um, as they learn to, to really live as a family. Uh, we also have a counseling program uh, for children and families that includes a really fun canine-assisted therapy component. That oh, I get that really is awesome. About. Um, we also do an annual marriage retreat, uh, which, you know, in times of non-COVID non times is like our biggest event of the year. 
Uh, we're hoping that that can still happen um, this spring. We're kind of waiting that out right now. Yep. And then we offer like lots of other opportunities for connection um, to really with the goal of encouraging, equipping, and empowering adoptive families. Okay. Awesome. Oh, awesome. I know. Um, you guys ended up having to can't, I mean, I felt like your retreat was like the first weekend of COVID, wasn't it? I mean, you, it was, it was the weekend, like it was March 13th was oh our, our marriage. Retreat. So we literally had to cancel it. It was that day when like everything was changing hour to hour. So we yep. canceled it like while people were in flight, we had people coming from 14 different States. Oh my gosh. That's so, oh, it's so dreadful. We just were so sad to cancel it as people were literally like on their way to Philadelphia. Oh, yep. uh, what a mess. What a mess. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. completely out of our hands, completely out of our hands. Yeah, it unfolded and we're trusting that that was good and right. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh man. Yep. It's been a year, hasn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so one of the things that, um, I thought we could discuss as you talked about and your, your, is it correct to say that your slogan is caring for the caregivers? I've seen that. Yes. That's so, that's like so perfect. Um, so we had discussed talking about those first six months together. So the adoptions happened, your baby or your toddler, or, you know, Hey, even a big kid these days, hopefully, um, is home. And then now what? <laughs> now right. what? So this is um, a little bit of what I was hoping you could speak into. And we, um, I wanted to kick off by asking you, you had talked about um, an at- attachment. And so yes. what is attachment and why does it matter for a, a new child coming into your home? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, a great, a great question and important one to ask. So it, simply put, um, I would say attachment refers to the fact that we learn who we are and how the world works through the context of relationship. And uh, with, with kind of the understanding that the, the most significant earthly relationship that we have is the one with our parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for children who've experienced um, brokenness and their understanding of who they are and how the world works because of a broken relationship with a, a birth parent, um, they, there can be um, struggles and interference with their experience of other relationships with adoptive parents, with peers, with siblings, and, and so forth. So that's kind of like the higher level view of what we're talking about when we yeah. talk about attachment. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so um, what can families do to help build this attachment and make it, you know, make it a strong one and sort of combat some of the things that may have happened previously in a child's life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this... this I know that's a big question. (laughs) It is, is, but like, it's an important one and I love being able to answer it. So like, yeah, it's okay that it's a big question. Um, I think in practice, it really looks different um, depending on whether a family is adopting a, a newborn or a toddler or an adolescent. You know, with international adoption, there's there's older children, um, particularly who are coming into homes. And we, obviously with foster care too, we have older children, mm-hmm. sibling groups and all of that coming into homes. And so what um, building attachment looks like in a family logistically really varies uh, depending on the situation. But 
it would be a misunderstanding or, or a big miss if we felt like, or if we viewed attachment as only applying really to babies. You know, sometimes the, as people talk about the, uh, what's referred to like the attachment cycle of like, baby cries and expresses a need and a caregiver responds and the baby learns that they're valuable and they have a voice and then they're better able to express a need and this cycle just continues like you know you've had babies like yeah four thousand four thousand times a day right this happens like <laughs> all day long um but that looks really different when we're talking about a toddler or you know an older child but it's it's no different and all, all different at the same time because the same premise is there, the same foundation is there of wanting to um, establish a, a healthy reciprocal relationship between a child and a caregiver. Um, so how we do that with a child really varies, um, but I think that it starts with an awareness of what we bring to the table, mm-hmm. uh, um, our own story and patterns, our own hurts of uh, messages that we're hearing on repeat in our own heads about who we are and how the world works. Yep. Uh, and then a willingness to enter into our child's story, whatever that may be, um, to understand potential messages that are there and, and being intentional to... Um, kind of move the, the train in the right direction and start that cycle of a healthy reciprocal relationship. So, I mean, that's very higher level. I, yeah. I'd say if we want to bring that down into like actual practice, you know, for a baby, you know, I already mentioned that that might look like baby cries to express need and caregiver comes and, and meets that need over and over and over again. You know, yes. that's, that's the beginning of a healthy attachment relationship. Um, for a toddler, it might be, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll share a specific example to you from our Great. own family. Great. Um, when our daughter Lydia came home um, to us as a toddler, um, she would not cry readily. And, you know, in American culture, a lot of people would be like, oh my gosh, that's so great. You know, you yeah. have this, you have this perfect baby. This is so great. She doesn't cry, but like babies are supposed to cry. Yes, they are. That's, that's, that's supposed to happen. That's their expression of need. And when she came home to us, not crying, it was because babies don't cry for very long if it doesn't get them what they need. Yes. And she was in quote, a, a good orphanage. You know, she oh, was in an yes. orphanage that really was, was doing their best to meet the needs of children. And I've actually been there a number of times since. Yeah. And, and I love the people there. So, you know, I, I hesitate to say, you know, negative things, but it's not the way that, that God desires families to be. Of course. So that's, that's not the best uh, situation for a child, obviously. Um, so she came to us with having a very high pain tolerance. Um, with not crying when she would wake up after a nap or in the morning or whatever to, to come get rescued from her crib and come out and play. Um, she was quite quiet. And so one of the ways that we built attachment with her is that I would watch her very, very closely 
And if she did something that I felt like might warrant a cry, like in my other children when they yes. were that age, yes. um, I would over respond to her as if she were crying. So if, if she, you know, was playing outside and she tripped, I would run to her and say, Oh, my poor baby. Oh, I, Oh, that hurt so bad. I'm so sorry you got hurt. And at first I think she was like, what, what is happening? <laughs> Who is this crazy lady? <laughs> and, and actually, you know, in all seriousness, was was very hesitant to even accept what I was offering because okay. it was so so different than what yeah. she yeah. was used to and, and out of her comfort zone. But eventually, she kind of got the message of like, oh, she, I'm I'm supposed to have a big response right now. You know, I'm supposed to cry out, and and over time she would start to maybe do that eh, 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 uh-huh. you know, that, that we know toddlers do yes, and, and call for me um, to, you know, get that cycle going in the right direction. And, and so when I say that, like, um, it looks different, you know, that's one way that we yeah. can, you know, build attachment with a toddler. And I mean, it looks different for every kid. It could come through, um, food preparation. Oh my gosh. It's like such a neat way to build attachment with our children, to be the giver of all good things when it comes to, you know, food and snacks and sippy cups to be like, I am going to do this. No one else gets to do this for my child. It's just me. I'm the mom. And when we do that, we are building our child's attachment, but we are also building ours. Yeah. Because no longer will we see this child in our home and feel like, you know, I, I hesitate to be, I shouldn't use the word no longer. It will, it will promote the feeling in us of being the parent, like yes. our child person. Yes. And, and help us to feel less like a, a child care provider and yep. more like mommy. Yep. When we're able to like, meet those needs, whatever they may be, whether it's brushing hair for an elementary school kid, you know, braiding a child's hair or like feeding a bottle. Yeah. It's just different for each kid. And it can be, it can like cross those age boundaries. Like my 11 year old still drinks out of a bottle sometimes Hmm. now. And that's, she doesn't really take it from me. I don't hold it from for her, but to her, it's like a sense of like soothing and I haven't made her give it up. Yeah. Well, I'm convinced that I'm not going to have a child going to prom with a bottle. No, so you're like, not. Okay. We're I'm all okay. good. Yes, we're good. <laughs> but like if it, if it brings her comfort and yeah. it helps to build her attachment to us that like I accept her need and it builds my attachment to her to see her as having a need. Yes. It's good. It's good. Yeah. So let me ask a follow-up question then. So do you yeah. think, um, so let's say you're, you're, you bring a child home into your family. Do you feel like it's really essential that the parents are doing most of the caretaking task? You know, like we've read like, um, oh, you know, you should absolutely, the first six weeks are crucial. Um, we've had people who, you know, have debates about, should we put our foster child in daycare? Like all these different things. Like how, how crucial is it that the parents are like making the lunch or like doing this certain thing? Like what can we, um, you know what I mean? Like sort of expect yeah. in, in that beginning sort of first couple weeks or months. 
I, I do know what you mean. And I'm going to give a maybe less than satisfactory answer to you. <laughs> That's fine. What I'm going to say is like, it's absolutely critical with lots of flexibility and grace because while I love to see the parents being like the exclusive caregivers, if, if there's any um, block or like anxiety or hindrance in that, if the parent is struggling in a significant way, yeah. it really is okay to step back a little bit and have some respite and, and some help. And that respite and help that gives you an opportunity to have like a happy reunion with your child, you know, like after a daycare, you know, or babysitter or grandparent visit or like whatever that looks like for your family, Yeah, whatever enables that happy reunion where you can feel good about being a mom or a dad again, that makes that respite really helpful with attachment. So it's really not like a very hard, inflexible, like you need to cocoon and be the primary caregiver for six months. Okay. And like, I don't really like hang my hat on that real strictly because it could be damaging actually hmm. if the parent is feeling so much angst that yeah. they are no longer responding to their child's needs in a healthy way. Yeah. Then it like difficult patterns. So if respite helps um, to get that train moving in the right direction, then it is absolutely worth it and valuable and a good thing. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. It makes a lot of sense. So would it be, so would some of these um, sort of, um, let's say you have an older child you bring home. Would yeah. some of these attachment um, hurdles come come out as, um, I want to say disrespect, but it's not acting out. Would that be like, uh, acting out, uh, testing you as the parent to, to see if you're going to actually, you know, show up and do that thing that you said you were going to do. Would that be, uh, something you might see in an older child? That's something that you can see in every child. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> For sure. You know, but I would definitely say there's like an element of like, universality of these things are true of every child. And then when you have a child who has experienced developmental trauma, yeah, there are absolutely um, these things that we see in a more, uh, more common uh, situation. Like, you know, it's, it's impossible to kind of weed out like what is our child's personality versus like human nature versus um, uh, developmental trauma, like it's, or, or special needs that are so right. Have. You're you know, so right. All integrated and that's okay. Yeah. But, but yes, that's like a long winded answer to say, yes, you can see um, difficulty with, with letting your love in with giving and receiving affection, with letting other people be in charge of them. Because children who've experienced trauma have been shown that they can't really trust other people to be in charge of them and that that's safe. Sure. So, you know, it makes absolute sense to me 
that children, even little, little ones, not necessarily children adopted at an older age, even little ones may struggle with letting their um, parents be in charge and trusting that they are actually safe. Yeah. Okay. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we talked about, um, the importance of talking about your child's story to us switching gears here a little bit. So can you talk a little bit about, um, why it's important to talk with your child about the story and other people too? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one, one thing I'd say is I love that this is being included in this conversation because I think it's something that's best thought about by parents early on in the process. Yeah. So as you kind of framed this conversation as being about the first six months home, I think that this is um, really important to include in that conversation. And frankly, I wish I had had this conversation more myself <laughs> early on because I think I made a lot of mistakes. Well, you're paying it forward. You're paying it forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're paying it forward. That's that's a good way to look at it. And you know, grace upon grace on us. And I'm I'm thankful my own child has given me a lot of grace in this. But um, first, I guess I would talk about um, talking about your child's story with others and early on, if we're going to keep this within like that framework of those first six months, I would Mm -hmm. say that, man, this is hard because by the time, like many of us who've entered into adoption and into foster care, there's a period of waiting. Oh yeah. Waiting is very much a part of this experience. And so by the time we get that picture of our child that we've waited so long for, or that call about an expectant mom, we are so excited about this information Yeah, <laughs> that we want to like take a megaphone and just like say it to everybody. Like we want to, we want to turn to the people in line at the grocery store and be like, Hey, do you want to see my baby? <laughs> we are yes. so excited yes. about this information. And honestly, if we're talking about, you know, attachment, like connecting this to that, mm-hmm that story of attachment and that process of attachment that we're talking about sharing the excitement is actually a way to build our own attachment because it helps us to feel like mom and dad. Yes. Like when we can like hold our phone up and be like, Oh my gosh, my kid is like the cutest in the world. Like, don't you think (laughs) this kid is like amazing. You know, when we, when we do that, we are building our own sense of attachment. Um, So in a way, that's like a really, really good thing. But we also need to exercise a lot of caution in our um, excitement or in our expression of our excitement so that we don't share information about our child's story that really should remain private. Yes. Uh, Because we need to remember that even the quote, you know, most beautiful. Uh, and, and I use that in quotes because it's like, I'm wrestling with that and I'm still trying to figure this out myself, but like even the most beautiful adoption stories have brokenness. Like if there weren't brokenness, this child wouldn't be placed in an adoptive home. So like there is messy and and hurt and brokenness at, at the start of an adoption story. And we need to be very careful in our expression of excitement about adoption that we do not share more than 
then we should share, even with people who are very close to us, like yes. even our own extended family. Um, there, yes. there's, there's no reason. Mm-mm. There's really no dependable reason that I can think of for us to share like abandonment details. Yes. Or all the details of, of why this expectant mom yep. made that phone call or something. Like that is something that is so, so private and so um, weighted and burdened that I, I just feel very strongly about how we share that story with others. Does yeah. that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And you know, um, when we had first adopted Callan, I was in a, in a situation where I was with a friend and there was a friend of a friend there. And she started asking me what I thought were uh, pretty nosy questions. Okay. Yeah. yeah sure. But it was the first time that I was in a situation where somebody was asking me questions I didn't want to answer. And, oh. and, you know, I think I tried to change the subject or something, but I left feeling like I need to be better equipped with a couple phrases that yeah. I can say to people, oh, that's not a part of his story we're, we're sharing or, you know, where I don't, I don't mean to be, you know, the mean neighbor person, but at the end of the day, this is my kid and it's our story and it's his story oh, yeah. and none of your business. Yeah. But I felt so unprepared because, you know, my family is very, you know, with it and they're not asking things they shouldn't ask. But then this person was, you know, just being nosy. And I, and I felt like, Okay. And I came home and I did some work on some things. Okay. This is the line. We're going to share this. And none of this is anybody else's business. But I remember feeling very unprepared for that conversation. Like I was like, what, why would you ask me that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because like, even, I mean, you're describing that you like sense that this person was like, just kind of nosy, which like totally believe you in that. I, I think even when people have the best intentions, like even if they are just like, trying to connect with you and be a friend or maybe like they're interested in adopting themselves. Yeah. And they're asking questions because they're curious, like because they are interested in adoption. But like, even in those cases, it's, it's so hard to know how to respond because we, we feel the tension, but we're also like going to break like all social, uh, you know, rules. <laughs> if, if we like, um, you know, yes. tell people like, Oh, can we talk about this later or something? And everybody deals with this in different ways. Like I've known some adoptive moms who actually carry like business cards that say, have like their cell phone number and their email on it and says like, I'd be glad to talk to you later. And Wow. When, like when someone is asking them questions and their children are right there, yeah. biological and adopted or mixed or one or the other, whatever, yeah, uh, they will just hand the person the card. Huh. And, and that's kind of the end to say like, I am willing to talk to you. I'd be yes. glad to talk to you about this, but I would like to do it privately. Like when my children are not all here. Um, there's a activity that we often will practice with children, with parents a part of it, so that parents can also practice this, that give people um, kind of a rehearsal, you know, just like you just explained about coming home and like figuring out your Yes. Script, you know, we, that we will ask hard questions of each other and then practice responding. And we give kids three options of how to respond. They can share about adoption in general, like in a distant kind of high level way, but nothing really personal. Yes. They can 
they can educate you know, or, or share about their own personal story, educate about adoption in general, or they can respectfully and firmly decline. Absolutely. And do that in a way that's not dishonoring or rude. Sure. But to be able to say like, you know what? I don't really want to talk about that today. Or for kids, I, I like to tell kids, you can always blame your parents. You can say, <laughs> right. you know, I can take it if sixth grade kids don't like me. That doesn't bother me at all. Nope. So you know, I tell my kid, you know, if, if you want to say my mom said, I don't, I don't, I shouldn't talk about that or whatever. That's fine with me. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And empowering them to have those conversations. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Giving them permission to respond as they're comfortable responding. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, and then why is it important to talk to your, tell us a little bit about the, the value. I mean, we know it's important to talk to your child about their story, but like, yeah. give, us, give us some insight into the valuable, like what's the ripple effect of, of having a positive sort of experience with their story and they know it and it's not a secret. Um, talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is something that I'm so thankful that, um, our culture has, you know, moved from where it was years and years ago of yes. being very closed um, in revealing, you know, histories to children, and also like that we've moved to understand um, how impactful uh, even the uh, nine months in the womb can be to a child. Like, I'm just so thankful. Yeah. So that as a culture that we have seen that and that we are now in a place where um, we can promote that to families. Um, so this is obviously like very different than the stance uh, or what I shared about like sharing with others because yeah. sharing with a child is, is, is really different that I, I firmly strongly believe that it's our job as parents to help our children make sense of their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that doesn't mean that we, um, kind of dump it on them and like give them everything at one time because there's a lot of like big grown up things you know that are involved in our children's story there's a lot of yeah there is things for our children to process um whether that's international when we're talking about like politics and policies and poverty and like just all these big things or you know other issues of um, rape and abuse and uh, drug abuse and yep. just, oh gosh, just like such heavy things for our they kids are. to do. They are. So I'm not saying that we, you know, dump that all on them. I don't think that that's helpful. But I also like fully agree with what you just said, Susanna, of there not being any surprises. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that that is, incredibly important to our relationship with our kids that we can be open from the very beginning in in kind of um the way i see it is like uh we we're sharing their story with them in layers of an onion you know if you can picture an onion that's got like an outer layer and goes in and in and in yes when they're very very little you know, maybe we just are talking about the fact that they grew in another mommy's belly. Yeah. Maybe that's just like the very, very like large, bigger picture framework that we always talk about, you know, that you grew in another mom's belly. And then maybe the next step is we say, um, your birth mom was able to make a baby 
but she had such grown up problems that she wasn't able to take care of you. Yeah. You know, maybe that's like the next, you know, the next layer. And we just keep telling them more and more and more as we believe they're developmentally able to handle it. So that when the time comes where we give them everything, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Of course. Like you, you told me that all along. Yeah. You know, rather than thinking like, well, we didn't want to you know, share all that with them. So, mm-hmm. so then you've got a kid who's, you know, 12 or 13 or older or whatever, younger even, who, who then feels really hurt and, and maybe deceived, yep. which is just so damaging and very, it's very not nice. unrepairable, but it's much harder to repair. Yeah. And I, I, I think that the onion metaphor is perfect because there are a lot of things that are not age appropriate and it's not this idea of withholding information, but, um, but you also don't want to be like, Hey, 12 year old, let's sit down and I'm going to tell you about all these things that are going to blow your mind because that doesn't, that doesn't serve anybody well either. No, no, no. Because then it, it opens, it opens them up to be like, wait a minute, what else haven't you told me? Yeah, exactly. Which, oh my gosh, like I never want my, I don't want my, my biological children or my adopted child to, to ever feel like I'm, you know, hiding or concealing. Exactly. Yeah, there's so many things to consider. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm so glad you agreed to talk to me today because I feel like, and like when we were emailing, you were like, we, we could have 10 podcasts. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she's, she's right. We could have, you know, a whole season on this. But I think what you shared is such, um, it's just such a, a good jumping off point because I agree with you. I think there's a lot of resources. You know, I'm in a lot of adoption groups and the most common question is, well, what do I do first? Okay, you know, you know, they talk about the dossier or the agency, you know, yeah. very, you know, there's a lot less questions on like, okay, we're home and it's, you know, it's maybe not going how I thought it was. And that's where I think some experience really comes in, but it's not, you know, that's not always something you can Google. You know? Oh my gosh. Yeah, totally. And I wish that we promoted more that the preparation for adoption and gosh, for parenting in general, like, <laughs> yes. like this, this applies both for, for, for parenting in general, as well as adoption. And frankly, we could even back it up more and say like for any marriage. Yeah, but there you go. I, I wish that we promoted more um, the value of doing our own kind of personal reflection and like working through how we have been impacted by our own history. Yes. What we are bringing to the table about what we've, what we feel who we are and how the world works based on our own experiences. If, if we were able to do that, I think we, we would be able to manage like those those first six months and like the next like 40 years as a yeah. parent, you know, like it yeah. never really ends. No, it doesn't I tell you. Like, I know you're in the throes of like toddlerhood and preschoolhood. I like it, it never ends. It's just a little different. <laughs> and maybe like bigger when I've got two drivers and I'm like, Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. I'll pray for you. <laughs> oh, it's so hard. But like if, if we did that intentional work ourselves more yeah. I think it would help us when we're in that place of saying like, now what? Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
All right. So two final things I want to ask you here that I ask all okay. my guests. Um, yeah. The first one is what is your favorite family activity? So you have teenagers, you have four kids. What's your favorite thing to do as a family? Yes. So um, as a like um, typical of me, can I um, change the question ever so slightly? Of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Say, You're the yes. guest. Yeah. I love that. So like the people who know me are going to laugh because they say that's so <laughs> Kelly to change the question. Um, <laughs> I would say, can I share a tradition? Not maybe necessarily an activity, but it's like Absolutely. a tradition. Um, so around here, birthdays are like a super big deal. Maybe just to me, but I make them a super big deal. Love it. I, I'm notorious for making birthdays into like a birth weekend. Birthday weekend, is that the thing? It is, <laughs> it's a thing for me. So one tradition that we have around birthdays is that when we have our birthday meal, everyone at the table shares uh, one word that we want to use to describe the birthday person. Um, and then it, there's usually a, like a follow-up of like, oh, why did you choose that? Right. You know, why did you choose the word helpful? What made you choose that? Um, and I, I don't even remember like when we started doing this per se. We were just talking about this the other day and I couldn't, uh, we were all disagreeing about when it started. So I don't even know when it started. <laughs> I feel like in our family, if we do something like two or three times, all of a sudden it's a tradition and we have it to do sticks. it. Forever. There yes. you go. <laughs> yeah. So um, we do it now like without fail for everybody, but it, it has become a very significant gift um, to the birthday person to hear you know, five words at least, and sometimes more, depending if there's guests around our table for a birthday, um, words of affirmation to describe them has just become like such a neat way to encourage each other yes. and to like, connect with each other and tell each other how much we matter. Um, and then of course we do it now for Mother's Day and Father's Day too. <laughs> We're going to get kind of bonus days. There you uh, go. We need it. Us parents need all the, the affirmation we can get. That's that's right. We're about caring for caregivers. So that means we need it. Yeah. Love it. Oh, that's such a great tradition. And I think it's such a good way to combat some of the messages our young people are getting from the media and social media. All right. Last thing, if anybody wants to learn more about the Sparrow Fund or you guys, what's the best place to do that? Yeah. Well, you know, we've got a website like everybody else. Oh, you know, okay. Thing. That's the thing. So um, www.sparrowfund.org okay. is our website. And, um, you know, my direct contact information is there, which Great. I always welcome people to reach out directly. Um, I would be you know, honored to hear from anybody as well as like the rest of our team. Thanks for listening in today. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Be sure to share with us on Instagram what you liked most about the episode by tagging me at Susanna.McMonagle. And lastly, if you want more information about the 5 to 8 shift, you can check out our website, the5to8shift.com. We'll see you guys next time.